Would you please turn in your Bibles to the book of Acts once again, chapter 11. Acts chapter 11. The passage we've been considering for the past couple of weeks uh, records the expansion of the gospel to the Gentile world. This began in chapter 10 with the conversion of the first Gentile by the name of Cornelius, along with his relatives and close friends. When the church of Jerusalem heard about these things, we read in verse 18 that they became silent. That is, they stopped objecting to the Gentiles coming into the kingdom. They stopped objecting and they glorified God, saying, then God has also granted to the Gentiles repentance to life. It's almost impossible to overstate the significance of this statement. Up until now, the salvation of Israel was, for the most part, restricted to the Jews. But now the door of salvation has swung wide open to include not only the Jews, but also the Gentiles. When we look at the mother church in Jerusalem, what we don't see is that they immediately send out preachers to the Gentile world. I don't know why. Maybe they had a good reason. But what we do see is that God, through His providence and through strangers of all persecution, He thrusts out laborers into the fields that were white and ready to harvest. If you read in verses 19 following, 19 through 24, We read, now those who were scattered after the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, preaching the word to no one but the Jews only. But some of them were men from Cyprus and Cyrene who, when they had come to Antioch, spoke to the Hellenists, that is the Greeks, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, And a great number believed and turned to the Lord. Amazing and wonderful things were happening there in Antioch. Antioch, you remember, is the third largest city in the Roman Empire. God was doing something. And word of this got back to the Jerusalem church. And they responded appropriately by sending a good and godly man by the name of Barnabas out to see what was going on there. We read that in verses 20 through 24. It says, Then news of these things came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent out Barnabas to go as far as Antioch. When he came and had seen the grace of God, he was glad and encouraged them all that with purpose of heart they should continue with the Lord. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. And Barnabas is glad and rejoicing and God keeps blessing. And Barnabas saw that he needed help. And so he heads to Tarsus to find his brother in the Lord, Saul. Saul had been converted but had to flee Tarsus because of persecution. But uh, he goes and finds Saul and he brings him back to Antioch so they can get to work. 
And then we read in verses 25 and 26, Then Barnabas departed for Saul, for Tarsus, to seek Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. And so it was that for a whole year they assembled with the church and taught a great many people. Uh, this, uh, the Lord was doing wonderful things and, and God was blessing and these, these people needed to be taught. And Barnabas, while he was a great encourager, he knew that Saul, who would later be called Paul, the apostle, could come and instruct them in the word of God. And so the church in Antioch would, beco- would become, next to Jerusalem, the most influential missionary church in the New Testament. And all of this was because, as we read, the hand of the Lord was with them. Unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. But then notice that Luke, at the end of verse 26, adds this curious bit of information that I want to focus on this morning. He says, and the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. Uh, this is by far the most common name for a follower of Christ, a Christian. And there are many names or designations in the Bible for Christians or for believers. They're called believers. They're called disciples, followers, a, a saint, a brother or brethren. And these are used many, many times in the Bible. But did you know that the name Christian is used only three times in the entire New Testament. Only three times. The first time is used right here in our text. The second time is used in Acts 26-28 when the Apostle Paul was giving his defense before King Agrippa. King Agrippa entered, uh, interrupted and either seriously or sarcastically said, you almost persuade me to become a Christian. The third place we find it is in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 16, where Peter's exhorting the fellow believers, and he says, If anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in this manner. Only three times, and yet over the centuries, the name Christian has remained by far the most common designation for followers of Jesus Christ. And yet, because of its extended use and perhaps overuse at times, or thoughtless use, or even misuse, this name has lost much of its significance. It's on our tongue and uh, in our words and in our books and all we see it, we use it without thinking a thing about it. Uh, it's too often been used as simply another category of world religions such as the Muslims or the Buddhists, the Jews, the Christians. It's just part of the the landscape of religions in the world. I believe it's very beneficial to look back at the origin of the Christian name and try to recapture some of its primitive and original use. I don't believe that Luke, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, was merely inserting a a curious bit of trivia. It's important to know this is where it was first used. Now, when he says they were first called Christians, it reminds us that Christians weren't always called Christians. 
Now, here in chapter 11, it's been approximately 10 years or so since the resurrection of Christ and since the day of Pentecost and the beginning of the New Testament church. And for some reason, 300 miles from Jerusalem in this large pagan city of Antioch, disciples were first called Christians. Now, I want you to also notice that Luke says that the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. And the word called indicates that it was probably a nickname given to them rather than a name they came up with for themselves. It wasn't like what we did many years ago when we started this church and we had to sit down and try to figure out a name. What are we going to call ourselves? Well, we end up calling ourselves what every other Reformed Baptist church calls themselves. But we had to still work through it and figure out what we're going to call ourselves. Well, here he tells us that they were first called Christians in Antioch. Now, he doesn't actually tell us by whom they were called this. Um, but he, he tells us uh, where they were called this, not by whom. Well, who do you think gave them this name Christian? Well, there are a lot of conjectures on this, and we don't have any solid evidence of exactly who did. But we could ask, well, was it the Jews residing in Antioch? And there was a large number of Jews in Antioch at that time. Well, it's very doubtful that they would have called them Christians because the name Christ, which is not a proper name, it's a title, is in that name, Christ or the Messiah. Well, they weren't about to call them followers of the Christ or the Anointed One because that would condemn themselves because they're not following Him. Most commentators that I read believe that it was given to them by this pagan watching world of Antioch. Here's this growing number of disciples. Surely they drew attention to themselves somehow. And they weren't ashamed of what they believed. They were talking about it. They were living it out right in the midst of this crooked and perverse generation of Antioch. But they certainly caused people to wonder, who are they? What are they all about? What do we call them? Back in Jerusalem, you remember that uh, the, the believers there were sometimes called people of the way. And that was because of their belief and their bold preaching that Jesus is the way, the only way to God. So we'll just call them the way. They believe that this is the way. And so they were called such. But here in Antioch, uh, they, they, they called them Christians. Now it appears that Antioch had a history of attaching nicknames to certain groups or individuals. The ancient Roman historian Tacitus wrote about the persecution by the emperor Nero of those, quote, whom the populace or common people were calling Christians. So it was the world gave them this name. It was probably used initially in a negative sense, to mock them or ridicule this this new sect or whoever they were. But in time, this name stuck. And actually, they liked it. They received it. They welcomed it. Even 
Luke, as he writes this, doesn't say it in a negative way. He just announces that this is where they were first called Christians. They wore it as a badge of honor. Even though they must submit it for something evil, they took it for good and wore it proudly. Now, some have argued that the word called here, that they were called Christians, indicates a divine authority or appointment, that it was actually God himself who gave them the name Christian. I was reading John Newton, and he said in those days, the Lord often communicated things directly to his disciples. And perhaps he did this. And uh, I'm not sure I would go that far, but whether it was by direct revelation or simply through God's hand of providence, even using the enemies of the gospel, it certainly has the sanction of God. And after 2,000 years of use, it has grown to be the most used name for the followers of Christ. Now, the first thing I want to point out is there is a suitableness to this Christian name. What does the name Christian mean? Well, there are more people than not who use the name Christian, who call themselves Christians, who really don't have the foggiest idea of what it means to be a Christian. Many would call themselves Christians because they were born in a Christian country. There are certain parts of our country, particularly the Bible Belt, where it's assumed that almost everyone you meet is a Christian. Um, now, I believe those days are, are slipping away from us. Uh, this is no longer a Christian nation, but still most people would call themselves Christians. Now, many uh, believe that if you go to church at all, maybe only once a year, you're a bona fide Christian. Uh, or maybe because you've been baptized as an infant or you joined a church or you attend a Christian school. But sadly, they are too often Christians in name only. They might actually have no idea what a Christian is. They have a name that they are alive, but they are dead. Sinclair Ferguson tells of a special service held in the city right after 9-11, the particular city where he was ministering. And the city brought together men from different faiths. They brought, they brought in an uh, imam from the local mosque, a rabbi from one of the synagogues, and a Christian minister. When the rabbi took part, it was so clear that he was a Jewish rabbi. When the Iman took part, it was also clear that he was a Muslim cleric. And yet, when the minister took part, you wouldn't have known what he was. And that is sad, very sad. And there are ministers throughout the country, throughout the world, who are standing in pulpits today who don't have a foggiest idea what a Christian is. In Antioch, it was clear what this new group was all about. They were about the Lord Jesus Christ. That, in essence, is what they were about. And that's what the word Christian means. It means adherers to Christ. It's a simple name, but it means you are stuck to Him. You adhere to Him, to His teaching. 
They were all about Jesus Christ. The message they heard when these Christians came to Antioch was all about Jesus. It says in verse 20 that these who came preaching they were in verse uh, 20, but some of them were men of Cyprus and Cyrene who, when they had come to Antioch, spoke to the Hellenists preaching the Lord Jesus. It didn't come with just some new code of ethics or some ten ways to how you can have a happy life. They came preaching the Lord Jesus. If you turn back just for a moment uh, to chapter 10 where we hear this first message, we read this first message that was preached to the Gentiles to the house of Cornelius. And we'll just get a flavor of how much Jesus was the message. He wasn't just part of the message. He was the message. In chapter 10, notice beginning in verse 36. Here is Peter speaking. Cornelius is gathered with his whole household, his relatives, his close friends, and they've all sat down to hear whatever God had for them through Peter. And Peter says, the word which God sent to the children of Israel, preaching peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. So he starts off with that note, that keynote of the Lord Jesus Christ. That that word, you know, which was proclaimed throughout all Judea and began from Galilee after the baptism which John preached, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power, who went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. It's all about Christ. Verse 39, and we are witnesses of all these things which he did, both in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem, whom they killed by hanging on a tree. Him, that is Jesus, God raised up on the third day and showed him openly, not to all the people, but to witnesses chosen before by God, even to us who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. He rose bodily from the grave, and we ate with him, he says. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that it is he who was ordained by God to be judge of the living and the dead. And to him all the prophets witness that through his name, whoever believes in him will receive remission of sins. Any sentence you look at in this message was all about the Lord Jesus Christ. It was about Him, about His person, who He is, His work, what He has done, and His Word, which we must abide in. So, John Newton said, let us beware of a Christianity without Christ. I testify to you in plain words that this is no better than a house without a foundation, a tree without a root, a body without a head, and a hope without a hope. A delusion which it persisted in will end in destruction. Do you have a Christianity without Christ? Do you have a name that you're alive but you're dead? There are millions around the world 
who name the name of Christ, who call themselves Christians, who have no idea what it means. But it is an appropriate name. The name Christian is so fitting because it sums up what they're all about. When they saw this new group, it wasn't hard to figure out that they were about Christ. They were all about Jesus Christ, His person, His work, and His word. They've come to know and come to believe that Jesus is not just a man, but He is the Son of God, God incarnate, veiled in flesh, the Godhead seed. See, this is the Lord Jesus Christ. He was in the beginning with God. He was God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus asked His disciples two questions. Who do men say that I am? And then He turned to them. Who do you say that I am? Who do men say that I am? They gave the answers. Elijah, John the Baptist, one of the prophets. There's a lot who call themselves Christians who don't believe any more than that about Jesus. They believe, yes, He was a good man. He was an inspirational man, a good example, a good teacher and so forth. But do they believe that He is the Son of the living God? Not at all. They think you can have Christianity with a Christ who's a mere man. But if Christ is a mere man, it's not worth taking His name. Not worth taking His name at all. But Peter answered, We believe and have come to know that You are the Christ, the Son of God. What a declaration. What a confession of faith. And every Christian confesses this. Not just with his lips, but with his whole heart. You are the Son of God. We have come to believe and to know that you are the Son of God. The Christ, the Son of the living God. You remember Jesus' response to him? Blessed are you, Simon Barjona. Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. God had to open their eyes or they would be blind. But you see, Paul goes on later to the Corinthians and says, the God of this world, Satan himself, has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they cannot see the glory of God in the face of Jesus. They're blind to it. But he says that God who who called light out of darkness, shines into their heart to give them that knowledge. He opens their eyes and they see. And that's why a person, before he's a Christian, doesn't really think much of Christ. But when God opens his eyes, he's now everything. He's everything. He's everything to us now. He is the Son of the living God. They've come to see not only who He is, but they've also come to see what He came to do. His work, which is to save sinners. A Christian understands what Christ was doing when He was here on earth. The Apostle Paul said, this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. Now, every Christian, a new Christian, doesn't understand all of the things about that. 
but he does understand, I called upon him to save me, and he saved me. He delivered me from my woes. He delivered me from my sin. I called on the name of the Lord, and he rescued me. You see, a Christian knows what he came to this earth to do, to save them, to do everything necessary to secure their eternal salvation. He came to be our representative before God. As our representative, when He came to this earth, He lived an absolutely perfect life of obedience before God. Jesus never sinned once. Children, can you imagine that? He never sinned one time from the time He was a baby to the time He died on the cross. He never complained. He never opened His mouth in sinning against anyone else or against the God of heaven. Jesus could say this, Father, I have always done what is pleasing in Your sight. Now, as Christians, that's our goal. Paul says our aim or our ambition is to be pleasing to the Lord. And yet we hang our heads knowing that we have not loved Him as we ought. We have not served Him as we are. We have failed in so many ways. But that is our goal. And if that's not your goal, then don't call yourself a Christian because that's what Christ did. So that should be what you want to do as an adherer to Christ. But Jesus never sinned one time. He always obeyed His parents. He always did what was right. Every time. And He was doing this because He was living as our representative. He was living this life of perfect obedience, the kind of life that we are supposed to live, but don't. For we've all sinned and have fallen short of the glory of God. He went to the cross. And when He went to the cross, He wasn't being crucified as a martyr but as a substitute. Please listen. This is very important when you want to understand what Jesus came to do. He went to the cross to pay the penalty for our sins. For The Bible says the wages of sin is death. He died as our substitute in our place, taking the penalty that we deserve so that we would not have to take that penalty. That's why the Apostle Paul could say with a note of triumph in Romans chapter 8, verse 1, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ. None. It's gone away. Jesus said, He who believes in the Son has life. He who believes not in the Son of God has not life. But the wrath of God abides upon him still. So he went to the cross to pay the penalty for our sin. He died in our place. And three days later, he rose from the dead, conquering sin and death. And he came out of the grave, not mystically or spiritually, as some false teachers would have us believe. He actually came out of the grave bodily. He's alive. We've touched Him, John says. We've handled Him with our hands. He told Thomas, you don't believe? Take your hand and thrust it into My side. 
A ghost doesn't have flesh and bones. They also believe that Jesus ascended to heaven and is at the right hand of God making intercession for them. They believe that He is there also preparing a place for them. And they believe and look forward to that day, the day of the Lord, when Jesus Himself will return to receive them to Himself that where He is, they will be also. So an adherent to Christ adheres to His person, who He is. They adhere to His work, what He has done. And they adhere to His Word, what He has said. Jesus said this in John chapter 8, verses 30 and 31. If you abide in My Word, then are you My disciples indeed. If you abide, I mentioned this last week, but I'll mention it again. Abiding is staying with His Word. You don't pick and choose. You don't neglect it. His Word is everything. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. It's not something you just take a little bite on Sunday and you're satisfied for the rest of the week. No, the Word of God is to be our meat and drink. This is an essential mark of a believer. He abides in the work word of Christ. To him, it doesn't matter what popes or church councils or church leaders say. It only matters what saith the Lord. That's the heart of a Christian. He's the one who deserves the name Christian and adhere to Christ because he actually adheres to the word of God. How many people say, oh, yes, I'm a Christian But you can't really believe this book. It's full of errors, you know. You can't really believe this book. It's not inspired of God. It's the product of men. Oh, you'll find good things in it, and we like to quote many portions of it, but you can't trust all of it. The Apostle Paul told Timothy to continue in the Word, for all Scripture is inspired of God and is profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, instruction, and righteousness that the man of God might be thoroughly furnished unto every good work. Isn't that wonderful? We have a book that we can trust. I'll never forget when I was a new Christian and this truth came came so strong to my mind. I tried to witness for the very first time to my boss and a a waitress in in the restaurant where I was working. And they're talking about the solutions to life's problems and all the crime and I remember with my boss, he was an older man and kind of rough, and he said, well, we just should take the, the, the dope heads and string them up <laughs> right, in the, right on the streets. That'll teach it. That'll correct it all. And, and she said, oh, no, we need to have uh, send them to a rehabilitation, and we can change them all in this way. And, and I just knew I had to say something, and I said this. I said, you know, the answer has been lying around for thousands of years, and nobody wants to pick it up and read it. It's the Bible. The Bible. And that was my weak testimony, but I still believe it today. It's the Scriptures. The Scriptures of the Old and New Testament is our only rule for faith and for practice. That's what a Christian is. He believes the Bible. If you don't believe the Bible, get rid of the name. Don't call yourself a Christian if you don't believe the Bible. I had talked to a, 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 someone in our church early on 
they were just leaving their church and their pastor was talking to them and trying to convince them, no, don't go to that church. And, and uh, she, asked, she asked him about the Bible. And he didn't believe that the Bible was the inspired Word of God. But he talked about following Jesus. Well, tell me, how can you possibly follow Jesus without the Word of God? Because what do you know about Jesus apart from the Word of God? And Jesus Himself, according to the Word of God, says, unless you abide in My Word, you cannot be My disciple. Jesus didn't compromise. Well, we could work something out. You know, as long as you, as long as you give it a try, as long as you uh, don't neglect Me entirely. No, He said, abide in My Word. So for the Christian who bears the name of Christ, what only matters to him is what saith the Lord. After all, you notice in verse 26, it says, and the disciples were called Christians first in Antioch. So he says they're disciples and they're Christians. That tells you something here, doesn't it? Disciples are Christians and Christians are disciples. You can't believe in Christ without becoming a disciple. Discipleship isn't for some elite group of super spiritual saints. As a young Christian, I was involved at different times in various discipleship groups. And they always talked about, well, you know, you get them saved, but now you've got to get them to be disciples. And some want it and some don't. Uh, that's just the way it goes. Well, uh, the problem is that it, this idea of you be a Christian and not a disciple, it conveys a very false notion that there are two kinds of Christians. You have the ordinary Christian who believes in Jesus, and then you have disciples, those who are serious about it. Well, if you're not serious about it, you're not really a Christian. These disciples were called Christians not because they were tipping their hat to Jesus, but because He became everything to them. He was their life and their breath. He was all to them. A disciple is someone who follows and adheres to the teachings of another. That's what it means to be a disciple. When there's discipleship in the, old, in the, in the Bible, you have a teacher or a master and then the pupil who is the disciple. A disciple is basically a follower or a learner, someone who regards another as an authoritative teacher, and so he attaches himself to them. Whether it's a, it's a disciple of Plato or Aristotle, they had their, their disciples who would follow them. If they were a disciple of, of one of the philosophers, that meant that they adhered to the teaching of that particular teacher. And so the disciples would literally walk around them. They would walk from here to there and the disciples would follow them while they're teaching them and, and explaining to them or commanding them. They would sit at their feet and listen and learn from them. Very often they would leave everything, their homes and their occupations, their former allegiances to follow their master. Well, we see this in the disciples at Antioch. In verse 26, we see that they were indeed hungry for the Word of God. Notice in verse 26, 
after Barnabas went to Tarsus and finds Saul and brings him back. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch so that it was for a whole year they assembled with the church and taught a great many people. These new believers, they, they've come to know and believe that Jesus is the Christ. They're trusting in His finished work on the cross. They're looking forward to Him coming home or returning from heaven to receive them to Himself. But what do they want? They want to learn more. They want to learn everything they can about Him. Too, as a new Christian, nobody had to tell me to go to church. <laughs> I wanted to go to church. You know why? I mean, I was living on my own at that time. Had an apartment. And I didn't have to go to church anymore. You know, you kids might complain in your hearts that, well, oh, I don't want to go to church. And you might be thinking, well, as soon as I'm old enough, I'll stop. Well, I did just that. I stopped. I didn't want to go to church. I had other things to do, I thought, more important, more fun, of course. But when I became a Christian, I didn't even have a vehicle at the time. I just got up one Sunday morning. I knew there was a church about a mile away, and I just went walking, looking for it. And I went in. Why did I do that? I wanted to know more about Jesus. I wanted to know more about this, this Savior who saved me. I wanted to learn the Bible. In fact, when I went to Bible college, shortly after, a few years later, I went to Bible college, and it wasn't really to become a minister. I just wanted to learn more about the Bible. <laughs> I don't think you should go away to Bible college just to learn about the Bible, necessarily. But that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to learn about the Bible. Well, these disciples in Antioch, they were hungry for the Word of God. And where the Word of God was being taught, that's where they were found. And that's why you ought to be here when the Word of God is being taught, whether it's Sunday morning, evening, or Wednesday, the Word of God is being taught. Now, I know there are times that you can't. Providentially hindered, we understand that. But it ought to be your desire, the desire of your heart to learn more. More about Jesus. More about His Word. The Bible teaches, as I mentioned last week, or Wednesday night, I'm sorry, Wednesday night we were talking about the uh, the, the confession of faith that the Scriptures teach what we are to believe concerning God. Don't you want to learn more about that? And what duty He requires of us. Don't you want to learn that? If you don't, there's something wrong with your Christianity. You say you're an, an adherent to Christ, but you don't care what His Word says. Don't you want to learn more? We need to reevaluate some things, don't we? William Plummer, in, his, uh, in one of his books on what is the Christian name, he says, Christian is a very fit name for all the followers of Christ. They are in Christ. They love and adore Christ. They are ready to die for Christ. He is their Savior and Redeemer. They are not ashamed of Him and He is not ashamed of them. They are His friends, followers, and redeemed of Jesus Christ. He is all in all to them. They are precious to Him. Christian is a very convenient name. It well designates God's people and itself sums up the whole matter. Other names are given to God's people and some are very appropriate, but none more fitting than this. Christian. A Christian. A real Christian. Not just a name only or not a name that you don't even understand 
but it's because you belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. I am my beloved's and He is mine. I wear His name proudly. And what an honor it is to wear His name that I belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. But also, and I'll just spend a moment on this, there's also an obligation to those who call themselves Christian to live like a Christian. I've been interjecting that throughout. But there is a difference between how a person becomes a Christian and how he lives as a Christian. To become a Christian, what do you need to do? You need to come. <laughs> come to Jesus just as you are. You can't clean up your act. You can't follow a bunch of rules and then you'll be, you'll be fit to come. You come just as you are without one plea. But that thy blood was shed for me, O Lamb of God, I come. I come to thee. You come to Him believing, trusting. You see your need. You're a sinner. You're undone. You're, you're heading to hell. You want to be rescued. You come. That's becoming a Christian. But how a person lives as a Christian, he is a close adherence to the Word of God. 2 Timothy 2.19, the Apostle Paul says, Let everyone who names the name of Christ depart from iniquity. Do you name the name of Christ? You call yourself a Christian. Then depart from iniquity. If you're living in sin, you need to turn away from that sin by God's help. By God's strength, say, Lord, help me. This has such a hold on my life. It's such a strong pull. Lord, help me to turn away from my sin. Matthew Henry says, Thus they laid upon themselves that all they should ever profess that that all that should ever profess that name, a strong and lasting obligation to submit to the laws of Christ, to follow His example, and devote themselves entirely to the honor of Christ, to be to Him for a name and a praise. Are we Christians? He asked. Then we ought to think and to speak. And to act in everything as becomes Christians. And to do nothing to the reproach of that worthy name by which we are called. You see, that should stop us from sins. Particular sins, we know it will bring dishonor to the name of Christ. And that should be the last thing a Christian ever wants to do. He used the illustration of Alexander the Great. There's a particular soldier who was also named Alexander, but he was a coward, <laughs> a coward. And he told him, either change your name or mend your manners. And Christians, you need to think of that. Either change your name or change what you're doing. Change how you're living. Make Christ your all in all. The Apostle Paul says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. He said, the life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself up for me. Everywhere you look in the New Testament, that's all you find again and again and again. Those kinds of statements. Set not your affection on things below, but on things above where what? Christ is seated at the right hand of God. That when Christ who is our life shall appear. Notice that expression. Christ who is our life shall appear. 
Then shall we also appear with Him in glory. Looking to Him. Everything is looking to Christ. Looking to Him as the author and the perfecter of the faith. Yes, He tells you things to do, but you do them all the while looking to Him. Looking to His strength. Looking to His perfection. Looking to what He has done to rescue us. Are you looking to Him? When you were first called a Christian, were you really a Christian? Are you a Christian now? Do you bear the name? Do you want to be a Christian? What do you do? You go to the Scriptures. You go on your knees and you pray, Lord, show me my need. Show me how to come to You. Believe on Him. Look to Him. Run to Him. Those are all expressions telling you, go to the Savior. He'll save you. He'll put His name right smack on your head. (laughs) He'll put it there. You'll be His. And you'll know it. And He'll know you. Let's pray. Gracious Father in Heaven, 